This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, November 21st, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on today's show, Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press recaps the latest news making waves in the country. Ryan Delahanty tells you about a new mental health day hospital coming to Sydney, Nova Scotia. And Marka Flalo describes some of the big ticket items to check out on Cyber Monday. But let's start with today's top news. The Emergencies Act inquiry is set to wrap up this week following a slew of highly anticipated testimonies. Karen Rebo has a story. The commission is opening its sixth and final week after hearing from more than 60 witnesses about the government's decision to declare a federal emergency to clear a gridlocked downtown Ottawa and some border crossings of anti-COVID mandate protesters. David Vigneault, the head of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, is expected to testify on a panel with two other CSIS officials. The inquiry has previously heard that CSIS determined the protests were not technically a threat to national security. Also expected to testify is Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair, the first of seven ministers on the schedule before Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's anticipated testimony on Friday. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Now let's head over to Europe, where the war continues in Ukraine, and Sunday saw more missile strikes across the country, including the Zaporizhia power plant. Charles de Ledesma files this report. The International Atomic Energy Agency says more than a dozen blasts shook the Russian-occupied facility on Sunday, damaging buildings and equipment. Ukraine has blamed Russia, saying it was trying to prevent the plant from partially restarting to deliver electricity to millions of Ukrainians who, without heat, power or water in the freezing cold. Elsewhere, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said over 400 strikes hit Ukraine's eastern regions on Sunday alone, with blackouts scheduled for 15 regions and the city of Kiev. I'm Charles Duladesma. Now we head closer to home and the Ontario government and the union representing 55,000 education workers have agreed to a tentative deal. Laura Walton is the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. Today, we've reached a tentative agreement with the provincial government and the Council of Trustees Associations. Workers will be in schools tomorrow and there will not be a strike. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says the biggest winner is the children. The biggest beneficiary of this deal is our kids who are going to have some stability and be able to stay in school with the full benefits of extracurriculars and clubs and sports, the educational benefits, the tutoring. All this will be, um, um, will be provided to our children every day as we aim to, get, uh, uh, to keep them in school. Oh, won't someone please think of the children? Uh, We will dive into this in a bit deeper shortly when we have Michelle McGrigg to recap some of the biggest news stories of the weekend. Uh, Moving over to Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu is set to take office for a sixth term as Israel's prime minister while standing trial for three separate corruption cases. Jordana Miller files this report. 
After a five-month break, the corruption trial of Benjamin Netanyahu resuming here in Jerusalem's district court. Witnesses set to testify against the now prime minister-elect in case 4000, where he faces the grave charge of bribery. Prosecutors alleging Netanyahu gave over $300 million in regulatory perks to a telecom giant in exchange for the power to personally craft positive news about himself in its Walla news site. Former editors already testifying his influence included firing and hiring journalists, dropping and assigning stories, even shaping headlines. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem. Dozens of people are dead after an earthquake rocked Indonesia's main island of Java. Charles de Ledesma has more. The U.S. Geological Survey says the magnitude 5.6 quake was centered in West Java province at a depth of six miles. The National Disaster Mitigation Agency says, as well as the deaths, hundreds of people have been injured, many of whom hit by collapsing buildings. Among the dozens of buildings damaged are an Islamic boarding school, a hospital and other public facilities. The quake was felt strongly in the greater Jakarta area. High rises in the capital swayed and some were evacuated. I'm Charles Diladesma. And finally, we head over to BC, where the government has launched a new public safety plan. New BC Premier David Eby breaks it down. This action plan has two key tracks. One around enforcement, recognizing that we have zero tolerance for violence in our communities, making sure that people are protected. The second track around intervening, helping people break the cycle of life in and out of jail, preventing crime before it happens. He says that coordination and cooperation is key to the plan's success. The core of this plan is coordination. Coordination between justice system actors, nonprofit organizations, cities, the provincial government, indigenous people, working together to ensure safer communities. Now let's head over to our daily poll. We have the results from Friday's poll where I asked you, how excited are you for the World Cup? Well, it seems I was very much in the minority because very uh, 13% of you said very, 27% of you said someone, and 60% of you said not at all. So, you know, there's a lot of different uh, uh, sportsmen out there. I guess I'm just one of the few that are, are following the World Cup. But... Let's get to today's poll. How punctual are you? This is something that I thought about, you know, when we, when I'm starting to think about getting into work. I always try to get into work early, de-stress. De- so are you very punctual? You're, you're like me. You have to be there early. If you're not, you're, you're consider yourself late somewhat. You, know, you try your best, but you're, you're not kind of stressing if you're, you're behind a few minutes or not at all. You, you don't have a care in the world when you show up. You're going to get there when you're going to get there. Let's bring in Mike Ross first uh, and find out what his uh, level of punctuality is. Good morning, Mike. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm not too bad. So I posed a question to you. How punctual are you? I am very much the um, in, in the camp of if you're not early, you're late. And that comes from years and years of coaching sports where you've got set start times, set arrival times. And we always tell our players, if you're not early, you're late. So I'm very much uh, the the person who shows up uh, early for a medical appointment. I think part of it is... I just I want to be on time. I want to make sure that uh, that I'm not holding up whoever is expecting me. But I also think that 
in certain instances, if you can get into an appointment a little early, maybe you actually get served a little bit earlier and get get out of there a little bit earlier. So I, I think of it as beneficial for whoever is expecting me, but it could be beneficial for me too. Yeah, I'm exactly in that same camp. And I don't know about you, but for me personally, it's it's a stress thing. Like I find if I'm not there early, like five minutes before when I need to be there, I start to stress out. And it's like, it, it starts to weigh on me. It's like, oh no, it, it, I, I need to be there or um, they're going to move on to someone else or or I'm I'm going to be having less time to get the things done if it's like getting for, for work and, and prepping for this show, for instance, there's a lot to do. It's like, if I'm not giving myself as much time as possible and, and making sure I've accounted for all these different factors, it's just going to put me in a really bad headspace going forward. Yeah, you know, when I'm traveling to, you know, an appointment or a job, I'm very thankful for hands-free cell phones, Mm -hmm. which means that if I am starting to feel that stress, like I might be late, I'm the first person to, you know, vocalize a text or make a call to whoever's expecting me and let them know, because I think it's a reflection of you. And especially if you're talking about a situation where uh, it's a professional situation, whether it's your work, whether it's an interview for potential work, you want the best impression uh, put forward of yourself. And I think if you are going to be late, you don't want, you certainly don't want that impression with them. So if you actually call ahead and just let them know, hey, I'm on the highway, there's an accident, and I'm probably about 15 minutes behind. I think that reflects well on you. It says that you respect the person that is expecting you, and you think enough of them to give them a call, let them know what's going on, keep them in the loop. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much. We'll chat with you in a second to get the weather. But first, let's bring in Daniel Pianamondo and get his thought. Dan, are you a punctual person? I have to say yes. In terms of the poll, I am going to go with a very punctual option if I can help it. Now, it's very different. Uh, there are kind of two streams here. There's there's stuff related to the kids where, like, we have to pack the kids in the car and go somewhere. And there's just stuff where I have to go by my lonesome work, wherever. It doesn't really matter. Um, but I, I agree with you. I'm on the same page as you, Alex. In terms of that, like, stress and anxiety... You start to feel it, like, even before you leave the house, like, I got to get out the door, got to get out the door, got to get out the door. So much so that for, I would say, years, I've been using Google, like, the Maps navigation, Google navigation to go places. Even if even if I obviously know where they are and know how to get there, I don't want any surprises along the way. I don't want to be delayed half an hour by a crash. I want to be routed there in the most efficient way possible. So even coming here to work every day... Of course, I know the way I drive it every day. But just in case I'm like thrown off by something on the way, I always use my navigation to get somewhere. It doesn't matter where it is. Um, Now, with the kids, it's like a whole different story, because despite your best efforts, you always you're always late. It seems like we had a doctor's appointment on Friday where we had to take both the kids and it was quite a way. We're in Aurora and our pediatricians in Toronto. And, you know, like, you know, oh, one, you're ready to go at the door and there's poop in one of them diaper. Like, okay, let's change the diaper. Let's get them ready. Take off their, you know, clothes and put them like there's with kids. It's a whole different story. But if I can help it, I would say I'm very punctual. Yeah. That, and, and I think that's completely understandable, as you yeah. say, Dan, because, you know, you, you, you can't control kids to a certain right. point, especially when when they're young like that and they're, they're still in diapers and they can't necessarily communicate. Oh, you know, I, I need to get changed or I want this. I want that. It's a whole other thing, but uh, 
at least for for yourself, you know, you say, yeah, you use the navigation yeah. tool. For me, it's very similar. It's like, okay, I'm I'm gonna rely on Waze whenever yeah. I'm I'm going anywhere. It's like I want to see the live updates. Yes. I want to see. Yes. Oh, it's it's gonna be red here. Okay, do I need to change Correct. and get on to the express or, or the collectors? So I live and die by Google Navigation. Like mm-hmm. I, I honestly, like that gives you the little ETA, and if yep. I if it starts creeping up, you know, like <laughs> oh a minute here, a minute there, I'm like oh. Jeez, this is not good. <laughs> so yes, I, I do uh, you know use that at every opportunity. That's great, Dan. Thank you so You're much. Welcome. Let's head back to Mike, who has our national weather update. Thank you very much, Alex. We're going to begin your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there'll be flurries today. Some local blowing snow, about two centimeters in total, but it's the winds that are concerning today, up to 120 kilometers an hour. The temperature will fall to zero this afternoon. To Halifax, a few flurries, a high of plus one and a wind chill of minus 11. To Montreal, periods of snow beginning near noon, your high is plus one. The wind chill will be minus 17 this morning. Ottawa getting two centimeters of flurries today and a high of plus two. Your wind chill minus 15 this morning. Toronto has a mix of sun and cloud with a high of plus 5 and a wind chill of minus 12 this morning. Thunder Bay mainly cloudy today with a high of minus 2 and a wind chill near minus 10. To Winnipeg where it will be cloudy with a high of minus 3, the wind chill minus 7 this morning, minus 16 this afternoon. Saskatoon We'll see increasing cloudiness with a high of zero and a wind chill of minus 19 this morning. To Alberta, Calgary, clearing skies and a high of plus four. The wind chill this morning, minus six. In Edmonton, it'll be cloudy with a high of plus five. Let's head up to the Northwest Territories and Yellowknife. Snow ending this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud. The temperature will fall to minus 11 today. The wind chill minus 10 this morning, minus 15 in the afternoon. And into British Columbia. Vancouver will be cloudy with a high of 8. Victoria cloudy also with a high of 8 degrees. And that is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you so much, Mike. And we'll be talking to you a bit later in the show. And if you at home, you want to participate in our poll, let us know how punctual you are. You can head to Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or you can uh, vote on Twitter at, at Accessible Media. And let us know, too, if you have any tips or tricks like like Dan using Google Navigation, myself using Waze. Do you have any tools to help you stay punctual? Coming up after the break, we have Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press who will recap the latest news making waves in the country. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-DB. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave Brown. Let's catch up with Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig to find out what was making news this weekend. Good morning, Michelle. Hello, Alex. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Enjoyed a nice weekend. There were some big news stories that happened on the weekend, though, and uh, you wanted to chat about some of them, including one we did. (laughs) As per usual. And and one we did kind (laughs) of... touch on at the top of the show, which is the union and the Ontario government coming to an agreement, a tentative deal 
for the education workers. So why did you want to uh, cover this one? Well, yes, they've reached a tentative deal, sort of. This is, you hear the words tentative deal and nine times out of 10, you think, okay, great, cool, we're resolved, we're not going to hear about this anymore. But there's a bit of a wrinkle with this one. Last week, uh, there were negotiations ongoing between the Ontario government and QP, which is the Canadian Union of Public Employees, and they, they support about 55,000 education workers in Ontario. Those negotiations were not going well from QP's perspective, and they filed strike notice on the grounds that the government was not offering any more money to raise staffing levels in schools. They had settled the wage issue that caused the two-day the, the two walkout earlier this month, uh, but they said they were going to keep pushing for staffing levels, and they were prepared to go on strike over that as well. When the tentative deal was announced yesterday, uh, it's pretty customary not to have a lot of new terms revealed right out of the gate. But what jumped out yesterday was that QP said basically this is the exact same deal that was tabled last week. Nothing has changed. The government would not budge. The staffing level concerns that QP was raising have not been addressed at all in this setup. But here we are anyway with a so quote-unquote tentative agreement. So this is looking like a pretty big win for the government at the moment. QP's position is that the membership has indicated they want to be able to weigh in on this. So that is where we stand now. Uh, classes are in session. There are no cancellations at the moment, but the ratification process will get underway on Thursday. And given some of the uh, vocal opposition to some of the government actions we've seen from, from QP members in recent weeks, I, for one, I'm going to be quite interested to see what happens with this ratification. I don't know if it's going to be the kind of straightforward deal that we usually see when we get into labor disputes like this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And this was something that was really surprising to me as well. As you mentioned, uh, Laura Walton, who's the the uh, president of the the Ontario uh, uh, board, school board uh, for representing Coopy, and she said, yeah, th- this is essentially the same deal that was on the table last week. Uh, when when they filed notion to two strikes, so it's like, okay, but what's changed between well, now and then? Exactly, and, and honestly, that was the thrust of the, all of the questions. I was watching that news conference as our reporter Allison Jones, who's been covering this at length for CP, uh, was was taking part, and every reporter's question was very much along the same lines: "Is like, okay, no, let me get this straight. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Next question. No, no, just just for clarity, just for clarity." Has anything at all changed? <laughs> we, we were all kind of struggling to wrap our heads around what was going on here because it's quite unusual. But no, Laura Walton, you're right, made it very clear. The offer on the table is identical to the one proposed last week that the union did not see as adequate. What's changed from their perspective? The only answer they would give is that they think they should throw it open to the membership. But I I, I, I don't know. The sense really, uh, the, I think the consensus position is that the government simply refused to budge any further. Yeah. Now, do you think that the optics or or the position to strike and and kind of the negative reaction or backlash from the public towards Coopy if they did actually go forward with the strike, do you think that kind of played the role in them taking this deal to the members? I, I can't imagine it wouldn't be a factor uh, because there were certainly would be a certain amount of backlash. They do have a certain amount of support too. But the other factor to consider, I suspect, is that they did gain a really big win a couple of weeks ago when the Ontario government said that they would climb down and repeal the law that invoked the notwithstanding clause. That this was this was the law that was going to ban QP workers' right to strike. Uh, it was going to impose a contract on them, but that was not negotiated. And, and most importantly, from the perspective of big labor, it was going to invoke the notwithstanding clause preemptively, which would have meant that it was basically immune from any kind of charter challenge. 
So when the government said that they were going to repeal that law if QP went back to work, that was due to massive solidarity from big labor across the country. That was a huge win to get that law repealed, to sort of take away that use of the notwithstanding clause to, to preempt uh, all kinds of, of efforts to challenge a law that was very controversial in the first place. So maybe this also is a bit of a sense of QP saying, you know what, we, we won that particular war. Maybe we're not going to win this one. We have to pick our battles a bit more strategically. It's it's hard to say. There was no real sense at this point of what took place behind closed doors, but it's certainly not a straightforward labor situation. Well, yeah, and, and as you mentioned, that that uh, uh, law and the passing of the notwithstanding clause was what led to that first walkout, which wasn't a strike, according to Laura Walton. It, it was a, a protest and a walkout, but... Uh, and then once they repealed that law, they brought them back to the table and it's led to this this deal now. This yeah, I mean, deal. look, let's be clear. She's calling it a walkout. Yeah. The day that they walked out was the day that they had earmarked for their strike. Yeah. Call it what you will. <laughs> Classes were out for two days. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the big, big win yeah. for big labor was to get that promise from the government to repeal the bill. And the government has, in fact, made good on that promise. And the bill, that uh, that bill was, in fact, repealed last week. And and so now it goes to their members for voting, which I believe starts on Thursday. Do you think that That's right. uh, do you believe that it's going to pass or do you think we're going back for another round of these negotiations? It's truly anyone's guess uh, this is where I'm simply not sure. Usually I can't think of that many instances when a tentative deal goes to ratification and does not pass. But this is not an ordinary deal, as we've heard. Um, so I, I, I simply, <laughs> I don't want to guess what the membership will do. It's a yeah. huge membership, for one thing. And and we simply don't know how it's going to play out. But we do know that QP has been highly mobilized on this one. So if there were to be some pushback and, and the deal was rejected, that wouldn't entirely shock me, to be honest. Yeah, we may be talking about this next Monday, Michelle. Who knows? We'll stay no, tuned. But And, uh, and bra- brace yep. yourselves, Ontario. There's still two more big teachers unions that need to actually three, I believe, that need to negotiate contracts with the government. So labor unrest on the education front in this province, I don't think it's anywhere near over. Absolutely. Now, you also <laughs> wanted times. to touch on the World Cup a bit. I, I was a bit surprised. I, I I didn't take you for a bit of a sports fan, but you don't want to talk oh, about scores. <laughs> you don't want to talk about scores or games. You want to talk about something else. So why did you want to touch on the World Cup? I mean, I have to say what one perk of this job is that it forces me to get educated on things that I'm not that knowledgeable about, like no. soccer, for instance. Um, this is a big deal. Canada has made the World Cup for the first time since the mid-1980s. Uh, this is a team that has, this will only be Canada's second appearance in the World Cup. Uh, during the, our last appearance there, we had, we never scored a goal. So we have, we have yet to put a Canadian goal on the board in a World Cup game. Um that those mat we have three guaranteed matches and the first one of those comes up on Wednesday. So there's a lot of excitement building around that and, and the team sort of coalescing and finding its groove despite a number of injuries. Um, but there's a whole kind of social subtext playing out behind the World Cup, which I'm finding very interesting. And I'm not even talking about all the drama with FIFA and the, the, its president's uh, very peculiar speech over the weekend for those who didn't see it. I recommend you check it out. It's uh, unusual. Yeah. Um, but an interesting piece of this is human rights complaints surrounding the host country of Qatar. Uh, a number of groups have raised concerns about the labor that was used to to build World Cup facilities. Um, Qatar is still a country that outlaws homosexuality. They have uh, a dubious human rights record, to say the least. And what's what's interesting now is even as the team is is getting ready for its moment in the spotlight. 
Amnesty International is taking Soccer Canada to task for not apparently being vocal enough about defending human rights and speaking up against the offences in Qatar. Uh, other global soccer federations have been a lot more vocal and, and pushed for change and, and condemned a number of practices. According to Amnesty International, Soccer Canada has been silent on these matters. And they're quite actively pushing for, for a lot more action and involvement from Soccer Canada, which is going to be new territory for this organization that is not really accustomed to the global spotlight in the same way that other international organizations are. Yeah, absolutely. Soccer Canada is already dealing with enough uh, issues within domestically within their own negotiations with, with the players <laughs> as they're trying to negotiate a new deal and contract as well and, and, and trying to figure that out. You add on to the Amnesty International call for for more action and then internationally you you see what uh, uh just came out recently with the uh, fifa that there were seven uh, european nations who were planning to have one love armbands as Arm a band, yeah, and, and fifa fifa threatened to to give out yellow cards for any captain who was seen wearing them so it's a really interesting pol- geopolitical situation that's playing out in the sports world so i'm i'm interested to see how this plays out the next couple of weeks, especially as we start to get into the competition, if this continues or if these issues kind of simmer and get put aside for the sport at hand. But that's something we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I totally agree. But it is fascinating. This is an event that clearly has something for everyone, the hardcore soccer fan and the one who's a little more interested in the geopolitical events and our those of us like those on the show who are really fascinated by the intersection between sport and and politics or international affairs. So uh, something for everyone at the World Cup, which is now officially underway as of yesterday. Absolutely. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. We'll be talking with you later in the week. Sounds great. Have a good one, Alex. Yeah, take care. So that was Michelle McQuig, who is the weekend news editor with the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, Marco Pasqua discusses the accessibility pros and cons of cryptocurrency in blockchain technology. But first, we have a Canadian uh, Canadian press reporter, Emily Jovesky, with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index opens this week after a boost by strength in industrials and telecom led it to close up almost 100 points Friday. Toronto's S&P TSX index was up 96 points at 19,981. In New York, the Dow Jones rose almost 200 points to 33,746. The Nasdaq edged up just one point to 11,146. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei added 45 points to 27,945. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 352 points to 17,641. Our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.53 cents U.S. And Statistics Canada is expected to release its retail sales figures for September tomorrow. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Emily Jovesky. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave Brown, who's off somewhere enjoying his best life. Uh, Cryptocurrency has been making a lot of headlines this last month, but despite some of the collapse of the exchange platform FTX, it's got us thinking about the accessibility of blockchain technology for digital currencies. Joining us now to explore some of the pros and cons 
of this is Marco Pasquale, the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Hey, Marco, how's it going? Pretty good, Alex. How are you? Oh, not too bad. I'm excited to dive into this topic. It's so fascinating. There's so many ways we can go, but I think most of us have heard and encountered cryptocurrency and, and blockchain, but whether we understand it is another thing. So before we can explore it any further, can you give us some quick insight into what they are and how they work in tandem with one another? Yeah, sure. So I actually kind of took the time to break this down. I, I got the dictionary definition, I guess you'd say, uh, or what they're talking about online. So a blockchain is a decentralized ledger of all transactions across a peer-to-peer -peer network. Uh, so using the technology, participants can confirm transactions without the need for essential authority. So basically without the need for a bank or any government officials, whereas a cryptocurrency is a form of digital asset that's based uh, and distributed across a large number of computers. And so so the decentralized structure allows for them to exist outside of the control of, again, governments or a centralized authority like a bank. And so I think that that's where it's a bit of a contentious issue for some people is that, um, you know, cryptocurrency and, and blockchain really exists within individuals being able to operate it on their own. And they don't actually need um, a lot of our traditional structure. So without a hand or a finger in that for a lot of government authorities or different banks and things, that's where it becomes a little bit of an issue. And as we've heard over the past couple of weeks, even as the FTX things have heated up, um, this can also become an issue for other reasons as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like I, anytime I read one of these news stories, my head always is kind of spinning just as I go with, with all the terminology. It's it's all the the technology behind it. Now, one thing I, I, I I've never been involved with cryptocurrency or blockchain or anything yeah. of that sort, but can you tell me a bit about, like, when it comes to cryptocurrency, how is the accessibility when you compare it to physical currency like bills and coins? Are there any benefits to having it all digital? Sure. Well, I'm sure our community here on AMI can attest to the fact that sometimes when you're handling physical bills or coins, it can actually be quite difficult for individuals with dexterity issues. You have to hand people money. Sometimes you might drop something. And for people in the low vision or blind community, this is an additional issue because if you don't know what bills you put into your wallet before you left the house, for example, or someone hands you a physical bill, you don't actually know what you're getting back in return. So somebody could give you an incorrect change. Someone could be deliberate and malicious about the amount of money that they're giving back to you. So what this really does is this allows the individual to have an opportunity to know exactly how much money or, or uh, whatever they happen to be using across blockchain that they're sending across, they have that confirmation of that number, they know exactly where they're going, and they're able to exchange it between one person to another without the interference of something else getting in the way. So I think that that is where we've seen a lot of the accessibility issues in the past, um, is that it's clunky. We know that everybody is using their Apple Pay or their Google Pay wallets these days. So everyone is going, it seems to be going a lot more digital and, uh, and then blockchain is really just a part of sort of that evolution of how we make transactions in the world, whatever that transaction happens to be. Yeah, well, that's a very uh, good point as you make. It's like we, we've already kind of moved for the most part away from the physical currency itself into this digital platform. Cryptocurrency and, and blockchain just is that next stage, that evolution of what we're already mm -hmm. using. But in terms of blockchain and cryptocurrency, are there, are there barriers that, uh, when it comes to accessibility as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. I and this is one of the reasons why I do have a crypto wallet, but I really honestly don't use it at all that often because I think that in order for them to evolve in a way that makes sense for a lot of people, um, cryptocurrencies use um, a lot of interfaces that aren't super accessible. A lot of the chains or the codes use hexadecimal uh, uh, sort of uh, codes or strings of code. And this is really not that user friendly. So I think that in order for blockchain and digital currencies to be more accessible, we need to start looking at accessible interfaces, just like we do with many of our apps or our websites. And um, it was actually um, sort of expressed in an article that I read prior to today's show that actually utilizing QR codes, which many people have sort of scoffed and sort of these things uh, you know, came into existence about 2012 to 2015. And at the time, people were like, what? are these digital codes people keep saying point your camera at and it'll take you to a website or whatever and people weren't really using it but they're actually making a resurgence now and i think that using qr technology could actually be a way that could be a lot more accessible because somebody could then scan somebody's wallet or digital wallet or whatever the case may be just like they do when they tap something at a store and it would actually do the interpretation for them if you're searching for a particular blockchain or you're searching for something it can be very confusing which i I think to your point, Alex, is it why a lot of people haven't dove into this technology yet because it seems very overwhelming and you're like, well, I don't really exactly know how this works. And, and I trust the old system because I know I go to a bank, I say I want to make a transaction and that money comes to me and so on and so forth. So I think that it's just it's a learning curve and a hump that many people, including myself, have to get over. Um, but having accessible interfaces would really make that big difference for those in the disability community. Now, one thing that I've always understood when it comes to blockchain and, and cryptocurrency is the fact that given the it's one of the pros or, or one of the uh, things that was really favorable was it was less regulated. This was more person to person use. It was more protected. Is would trying to kind of gain uh, uh, not really force, but encourage these uh, different sites, these companies to really invest in more kind of accessible formats like is would that not be seen potentially as a, a form of like regulating these these sites or these services I think so. And I think that they're already starting to try to do that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with the fact that it's an interaction between one peer to another peer without a centralized unit. I think that that's a really positive thing. That's what is the appeal for it. However, as you know, with uh, the Accessible Canada Act and everything that we have coming down the pipeline for that, why aren't we considering things like blockchain, uh, a technology of the future that really needs to adhere to certain things? I'm not saying that you need to regulate the entire process because a lot of people are like, that's why I'm on blockchain to begin with. But I'm saying that accessibility should never be an afterthought. Universal design should never be an afterthought. It should always be looked at as a super gain for many of these organizations and big tech companies because it's been proven. The second that Apple started to make accessibility at the forefront for all their new iPhones and various products, um, and that it was a feature for all users as opposed to, oh, this is a feature for people with disabilities. Um, people were like, I get it. Having dark mode, having contrast modes, being able to increase um, you know, the font size for things, these should be things that people consider out the gate because you're actually going to get further and more adoption quicker. And I think that all of these technologies really need to consider this as we move forward, right? Absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more. You know, there's all the benefits to just having these features available for those who want to use it. You, you increase your consumer base. You make it that your platform is and your service is the one that more people are going to go to because it offers all these different features available that maybe someone else might not offer it then. 
Now, exactly. And and so I I think I already get the sense here, but uh, I I want to ask like, are you in favor of this going forward? Is is this something that you're gonna <laughs> kind of start to explore and maybe dive into a bit uh, going forward? I mean, maybe. My whole thing is is that blockchain, people should know this, can be used for other things other than just financial transactions. I mean, this can include things like um, settling trades if you're in the stocks, uh, you know, traditional stocks. This could be things like voting and ensuring secure voting so that there isn't um, other individuals tampering with things that you are directly involved with sending over your vote to a particular, um, you know, source, uh, which I think is very, very popular uh, among a lot of people and everything going on in the world right now. And of course, um, many other issues can be solved with blockchain just because it's that direct and more secure network transaction. So for me, I love that aspect of it. But I'm always going to be a fan of cash. A cash is king. And it's actually been a real problem. You know, when you go into certain stores now and they say we are cashless, we don't accept cash. I'm sorry, but you know, uh, Canadian currency is still legal tender. So technically speaking, these these stores cannot deny somebody for wanting to use cash that we have in hand. And so I'm on the fence because if we were to lose power tomorrow, or uh, for example, our banking system were to go down or the networks were to go down, how do you know exactly how many funds that you had in your account? And then all of a sudden things are just wiped and gone. So I think that there's always gonna be a need for having physical money, physical coins, just in the event that we don't know. We have a massive power outage or uh, maybe there's a, a solar storm or something. There's a lot of things that people have been talking about, you know, are on the horizon or on the forefront. And I just think that we need to consider all aspects uh, before we dive fully into digital anything, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, and it was funny, too, because this weekend uh, I went and just got a, a copy from McDonald's and I handed uh, uh, the cashier five dollars. Like, oh, this is real money. It's like it, it, it becomes <laughs> it, it's it's such a weird thing to be like, well, yeah, it's real money. It's a uh, cash is, as you say, it's still legal tender. You still accept it. But it's just you get so used to it as a society going cashless. Yes. And I, I'm sure, you know, the past couple of years with the pandemic didn't help that people didn't want to be handing over physical Handling. currency yeah. to each other. But, yeah, it's 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 a unique future. I I'm I'm on the fence about it still. I think I, I want to see it in more applications before. I really kind of sign on board with with blockchain and things like that. As you mentioned, you know, it's not just for financial trades and cryptocurrency. There's so many other uses for it. But I think I kind of need to see more before I'm fully on board and say, yeah, this is what what I want to sign up for. I, I'm a fully agreed. I'm in your camp. Um, and maybe it's because of the year I was born. I was born in 1985. So literally, I was born before the mass use of social media and the internet. So I'm I'm that sort of digital slash analog kid that's in between both. And I understand the both and the use of technology. But I really think that um, the reliance purely on digital, even as a techie myself, um, it can be a very dangerous slope to go down. So I, I'm going to be waiting on the fence uh, with, eager, with eager hands and eager eyes. We'll see. <laughs> Marco, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. It was a really fascinating conversation. No problem, Alex. I'm always looking forward to it. And I always like to do something a little bit different on my show. So thanks for coming along the journey with me. <laughs> yeah, we love it. That is Marco Pasqua, the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. You can follow him on Twitter at Marco underscore Pasqua. So, and we have been talking about this last week, but our friends at Tripping On Air podcast is giving getting into the holiday spirit with a special giveaway, you can visit ami.ca slash TOA contest to review a list of prizes that they're giving away as part of their 2022 MS Holloway, 
MS Holiday Gift Guide. Be sure to enter for your chance to win. The contest closes December 1st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern, so you better hurry up with it. Winners will be contacted via email and listed on the Tripping on Air Instagram page. So now we head over to Tech Trends with reporter Michelle Franson. There's Apple, and then there's everyone else. In Gadget, Sherilyn Lowe says for Apple users new to smartwatches, the base SE model is a good pick. I honestly think that's a great gift for anyone that's looking to get into, you know, monitoring their overall health um, or just understanding the smartwatch experience for the first time. This is a great starter smartwatch. Google threw its hat into the ring this year with the Pixel Watch, but Lowe says the company's first smartwatch offering is tough to recommend. Battery life is very short, so just... You know, be patient or be ready to stick around a charger all day or just disable most of its functions. And then, yes, you, you will have to pay a Fitbit premium uh, fee. Instead, for Android users, she recommends Samsung Galaxy Watch Line is actually, for Android users, uh, the best smartwatch around. With Tech Trends, I'm Michelle Franz and ABC News. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave Brown. We're happy to have Amy Amanti join us for her commentary on the upcoming crime, uh, the crime comedy film, The Comeback Trail. Amy is also the host of the AMI original podcast called Accessing Art with Amy, and she joins us from Vancouver. Hey, Amy, how's it going? Oh, good morning, Alex. Nice to be in the space with you. Yeah, same with you. It's, I'm, I'm excited to talk movies. I, I'm, I'm always a big fan, so... You are talking about the comeback trail. So can you give us a brief synopsis of the film, what it's about? Yeah, sure thing. Um, So we're looking at a film that is set in the 1970s. We've got two movie producers um, who are, uh, let's say, in big debt. They haven't really produced a fantastic movie. And so they go to a loan shark to uh, get the funding to produce their movies. And um, that, as you can imagine, doesn't pan out so well. Uh, and these film, uh, these film producers have a script that uh, is near and dear to their heart. And they actually meet a third producer who comes into some money accidentally um, by uh, one of their lead actors dying on set. And so all of a sudden the plot unfolds and how these ne'er-do-well <laughs> film producers can recoup some of their money and maybe finance their next film. Okay, I'm I'm hooked. Just on on that uh, a brief synopsis, I I'm I'm in. I I want to uh, watch it. We mentioned De Niro's in this film, but can you tell me a bit about the rest of the star-studded cast? Yeah, of course. I mean, Robert De Niro really needs no introduction. So Robert De Niro, of course, is in this, and he's one of our uh, our um, film producers. That's uh, I, you know, he's just, just, just like a. a cruddy film producer that's just what he is um that i choose the word carefully cruddy right (laughs) considering we're on radio so (laughs) Uh, but we've also got tommy lee jones who's a bit of a washed up older actor and uh, morgan freeman who plays our uh kind of our mob boss but there's a bit of a different take on this kind of mob mob boss so he's been the uh financer up until now with uh, illicit funds. And then Zach Braff. Do we remember Zach Braff from Scrubs? Was anybody a Scrubs fan other than me? Um, so Zach Braff actually plays the nephew, Robert De Niro, the nephew. So those are the two film producers who are uh, embarking on this um, 
new uh, adventure to find funds to finance their next film. Now, I, I've seen there's been a ton of these, like, big ensemble films, but sometimes, you know, despite all the names and all the talent, it doesn't always work. Does the ensemble work in this film? Like, did the casting director get it right? Yeah, I, you know, there is something to be said for um, the belief that when you populate a movie with big names, you get a lot of people that say, oh, I have to see this because A, B, and C are in this film. I'm actually not one of those individuals. I don't choose movies because of performers who are in them. I'm looking more about the content and the plot and those types of things. Because I think there's just as much merit in having films with no-name actors in them, as long as they do a really well job at performing. That's what we want to see out of our actors. But of course, if you're going to watch a film that's got De Niro and Freeman and Tommy Lee Jones, yeah, you're going to get um, a pretty reliable amount of acting chops in this film. So I think what's nice about this is that these characters, while very different, kind of feel like there's a little bit of a, a of a bond between them. And I think that's because the actors are, are friends in real life. Um, so you get all, you already get that that charisma and that feel that these folks are comfortable with, with each other. Even the relationship between De Niro and Freeman, who is the producer and the mob boss, is kind of like... It's lovely to some extent, really, when you think about it. And so this is described as a a crime comedy. Like, how much of a comedy is it? it to me, it sounds like like a comedy uh, on on the the scale of anything else. But are there a lot of laughs here, or is it a bit more on the crime side? I, I, it's well balanced, which I think is nice. Um, but I would say it's probably a little bit more on the comedy side. And we're not talking about sort of slapstick comedy here where we've got um, jokes that sort of don't really land. This is more of like a situational comedy type thing, a little bit of a comedy type air er- comedy of errors where the things that these folks are doing are so ridiculous that uh, and for them, it's it's reality. It's real life. But we're watching them thinking this is absurd. And that's where we get the laughter from. Amazing. That's always the, the best kinds of movie. It kind of recalls some of the ones that we, we would have had back in like the mid 2000s, like the Be Cools, the Get Shorties, those types where it's these weird ensembles. You got a mix of crime. You got the comedy. You get these yeah. just wild hijinks. It's like, how could this be real? But it, in their their lives or reality, it, it's real life then. Yeah, now, absolutely. I, and so this movie, though, has been in a bit a long production like back in 2020 it was on the film circuit trying to get picked up like and and recently just got released on Amazon Prime Video so why was it such a long process to finally get released well you know it's true because usually when we talk about films on this platform there are films that have been released within the last 30 days for example um this film was uh experienced um it's release at the comedy festivals. The first one actually was the Monte Carlo Comedy Festival, which was in October of 2022. So we're going back, you know, a significant number of years, two years. Um, so normally I wouldn't pick a film that, that that's this old, but COVID is uh, is still a real thing that's impacting. In 2022, we were, or in 2020 rather, we were really in the thick of, of COVID. And so this movie had, had every intention of going forward and then got delayed and pushed to uh, 2021, July 2021, and then got delayed and pushed until November 2022, which is now its release. Um, So even though it had sort of a soft kind of uh, film festival release, it had a major um, release on uh, streaming platforms. This was Amazon Prime, you know, so that the masses could see it. And so that, to me, that's sort of like 
most people probably haven't seen it um, or heard of it, even though it's been around for a couple of years now. Well, absolutely. Like for me, when when I saw the name, it's like I I don't recall this at all. And it's like, yeah. wait, this has De Niro, this has Morgan Freeman, Tommy Lee Jones. Like, how did I not know about this movie? That's that's basically I I think probably the sentiment for a lot of people when they first hear about it. Because for me too, it's like I'm a huge fan of comedy to begin with, especially ones that mm. are kind of in different genres and and especially with the the quote-unquote crime comedy, uh, and, and you can kind of tie into the whodunits like with Knives Out and being one of the most popular movies on on streaming in the last few years. It's like this this should have been just a bonafide hit from the beginning that should have been on the tip of everybody's tongue, but it, it seemed like it kind of skirted under the radar because of it. Yeah, I think, you know, that is really part of what we experienced in COVID in terms of marketing um, and also in terms of release dates, because people weren't going to the box office to buy tickets. Either your theaters were closed or people, when the theaters were reopened, people were hesitant to come back in large numbers. And so a lot of our production companies and films were released on streaming platforms because people could enjoy them essentially from the comfort of their own home. Uh, and we even saw, and is still trending today, obviously, uh, some platforms that would charge you your whatever, $5.99 a month, $9.99 a month, whatever, and then charge an additional like $29 for a release of a new film. So this is going to be a trend I think that's going to continue because now that people are really comfortable uh, watching like premier films in their home, it might be hard to get some people back to the large screen unless you've got a, a movie like Top Gun or Jurassic Park or something that really requires you to have the the large screen visual. For me, I don't really need the large screen visual, so I'm quite happy to be at home and uh, have my perfect setup. Well, and that's the funny thing, because uh, I was talking with my parents the other day, and, and what we always do as a bit of a Christmas tradition is we would go to the movie theaters on Christmas Day. We always celebrated Christmas Eve, and then Christmas Day we would go and, and mm-hmm. see a movie. We couldn't figure out any movie that really was drawing our attention to, to physically go to the theater that we couldn't already accessed through streaming services or things like that. So it's 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 a rare time where it's like you there's very few big popcorn blockbusters that you need to see in the theater. But uh, uh, before we go any further, I, I want to find out how was the audio description on this movie? Oh, sadly, the audio description, uh, Amazon Prime has taken a switch to using non-human voice. So it's uh, like having Jaws read to you your description, which I would say is probably better than nothing. But here's the caveat, right? When the blind community says it's better than nothing, some folks like Amazon Prime in this case say, oh, 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 well, that's so much cheaper. And if it's better than nothing, I'll just do that. Um, And so it's audio generated. There's no diversity to description in there. So that becomes a little problematic for me always in terms of representation. Um, But the also the um, audio generated um, voice also seems to be to me an audio generated writing. And I'm not sure about this for sure, but there is this change now. So in some places you've got a human that's writing the description and the computer reading, narrating the description. And in other places you've got the computer guessing as to what is happening and generating the description and reading the description, which for me gets really problematic because in some cases you've got movies where characters are, are misnamed incredibly so um, throughout the film. I, I remember seeing one film that was like this where they had one character by three different names throughout the film. So I'm a little bit devastated to see that a big platform with lots of money has made this particular decision to go to um, audio-generated ca- um, uh, description because I think that that is uh, it's a loss to the community. I get it. It's cheaper. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that I want to be like thought of as a, as a second class citizen when I experience my movies. Absolutely. And it's just so unfortunate that it's not really that entertaining level. Now, Amy, we, we got to go, but I, in yep. 20 seconds, can you give me your, your rating for this film? Yeah, this is a fun film. It's not a perfect film. There is no such thing. But just I think people have a couple of laughs. And instead of it being a whodunit, we know who's doing it the whole time and just like enjoy the absurdity. So I gave it an eight and a half out of ten. Perfect. Amy, thank you so much for stopping by. That Thanks, was, Alex. <laughs> that was Amy Amanti, who was reviewing the comeback trail, and the film is rated R. So as we head into the break, we will uh, be coming back. We'll get a highlights on sports. We're going to have our roundtable, and Ryan Delahanty will be stopping by. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike, filling in for Dave Brown. It's Monday, November 21st, 2022. Happy birthday, Mom. I, I was always glad I could say that on a national TV show to wish her a happy birthday. Uh, coming up on the second hour of the show, Ryan Delahanty tells you about the new mental health day hospital coming to Sydney, Nova Scotia. And Mark Aflalo describes some of the big ticket items to check out on Cyber Monday. But first, we are beginning with the regional news update with Mike Ross. Thank you, Alex. We'll begin in British Columbia, where BC's new premier has launched a new public safety plan in an attempt to curb ongoing public safety risks. David Eby says the province will be reforming the way repeat violent offenders are handled within the criminal justice system and how mental health cases are managed by frontline workers. The province intends to deploy response teams comprised of police, prosecutors and probation officers who will focus on repeat offenders. We'll also be adding 12 mental health response teams in communities across the province, some of which will be Indigenous-led. He plans to revamp the addictions care model at Vancouver's St. Paul Hospital. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency says avian flu has been detected in birds at three commercial poultry farms in British Columbia. The agency says the highly infectious H5N1 strain of bird flu was detected on two farms in Abbotsford and one in Chilliwack on Saturday. But it has not disclosed the farm's exact location or how many birds are impacted. CFIA says no human cases have been detected in Canada and the illness is not considered a significant health concern for healthy people who are not in regular contact with infected birds. To the prairies, a trial is expected to get underway today for two RCMP officers accused in the 2018 death of a man in northern Alberta. Constable Jessica Brown and Corporal Randy Stanger of the White Court RCMP were initially charged with criminal negligence causing death, but the charges were later ch changed to manslaughter. 31-year-old Clayton Crawford died from multiple gunshot wounds inside a car after a confrontation with police July 3, 2018. Brown and Stanger also faced charges of aggravated assault and discharging a firearm with intent to cause bodily harm. 
to Ontario. The executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition says details of a possible constitutional challenge to an Ontario law will be revealed at a joint news conference today. Natalie Mera says the potential legal fight would be against the More Beds, Better Care Act, which allows some discharged elderly hospital patients be forced into a nursing home they didn't choose. Also known as Bill 7, the act passed in late August and came into effect September 21st, but its full scale and scope was only realized yesterday when one of its controversial components kicked in. Ontario hospitals are now required to charge a mandatory fee of $400 per day to discharge patients who refuse to go to a long-term care home arranged on their behalf. And to the Atlantic region, advanced voting for the November 28th local government elections continues today in New Brunswick. Polls were open Saturday and are open again today from 10 a.m. until 8 p.m. Those going to the polls are asked to bring their voter information cards. People who aren't on the voters list are still eligible to vote as long as they show identification. And a fundraiser is being held to assist four families displaced by a duplex fire in Eastern Passage near Halifax. Last Tuesday's fire on McKay Lane forced seven people from the duplex and a travel trailer nearby while a dog and cat were lost in the blaze. A walkathon fundraiser was held by the people in the community yesterday. The Canadian Red Cross has also been helping with emergency lodging and supplies. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Thank you very much, Mike. That's uh, great to get that update, and we'll be checking in with you in just a minute to, to find out about the weather. But before we do that, it's time to have our sports chat with Jeff Ryman. Hey, Jeff, it's great to chat with you on this Monday morning. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Likewise. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. So there was a ton of different sports stories that happened this weekend. Which one do you want to touch on? Yeah, I think we should touch on the Grey Cup. Uh, It was a a pretty exciting game. It really came down to those last few seconds, as it typically does in, in, in CFL fashion. Uh, and you mentioned the storylines, and there were a bunch of storylines yesterday. Um, and I almost want to call this a bit of a revenge tour for, for, for a couple of folks, especially on the Argos, who, who won yesterday 24-23. Uh, so a really, really tight game, only decided by one point. Um, and the revenge starts with the running back, Andrew Harris, a Winnipeg native uh, a former Winnipeg Blue Bomber himself was let go. Uh, Winnipeg basically saying, "Hey, you know what? You're getting a little older. We're gonna we're gonna move on from you." And uh, uh, meanwhile, he didn't score any touchdowns, but he did uh, get a little bit of revenge, winning the Great Cup against his former team. So for him, that's gotta feel good. How about the coach for the Toronto Argonauts, Ryan Dinwiddie, um, former Winnipeg Blue Bomber player, now coach of the Toronto Argonauts, and uh, was able to pick up uh, a, a Grey Cup win. So that revenge tour does continue there with the, the head coach of the Toronto Argonauts. Um, and then also a, a crazy story here is Chad Kelly coming in at quarterback for the Toronto Argos. And this is a guy, Alex, who didn't get a whole lot of playing time um, while 
he was serving as backup quarterback throughout the entire regular season. He comes in and actually plays really good and is able to hold off the Winnipeg, Winnipeg Blue Bombers and and secure secure that victory for the Argos. So uh, the storylines are a plenty here, Alex, and what a finish it was yesterday. Now, I will admit I was tuned in to the Grey Cup for a little bit, especially the start of that fourth quarter. And, oh, look, here's a 100-yard kick return for a touchdown <laughs> to put Winnipeg up in the fourth quarter. Okay, I think this is done. And then... Oh, mixed extra point, eh? One yeah. point, just just whiffed on the kick. Okay, well, I I I I will admit I was still kind of convinced. Like, yeah, okay, I think they still have it though. This is Winnipeg, you know. The, this is the yeah. powerhouse. They're going for the three peat. They're up in the fourth. Toronto, you know, they they just didn't have that same same drive and and the efficiency so far in the game, but. Yeah, sure enough, they end up winning by one point. That missed extra point is so critical. Yep. I, I, I was very surprised when I when I saw the final score. I will admit, because I I turned it off and and went on to other games uh, that were were happening. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, congratulations to the Argos. I don't think really many people, if any, saw them winning this game. Did you see them winning? You know what? There, there was always a chance, right? And the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, they come in, like you mentioned, they've been to the Grey Cup uh, how many years in a row now going for that three-peat um, in the Argos. Meanwhile, they won the East. There's always that cliche saying that, you know, the East is uh, a lot weaker than the West in the CFL. And, and Winnipeg has really sort of solidified themselves as a bit of a dynasty. And I think that sort of scared people into saying that, you know what, the Argos don't really have a whole lot of a shot here. Uh, and they proved people wrong. I mean, they played really good football, especially in that fourth quarter when it came to the crunch time. That defense was superb. I mean, they got to Zach Caleros and sacked him a couple of times. And you're right. Like, I, I, it really came down to those those dying seconds. And uh, it, it, just watching the game on TV and watching and sort of reading the body language of all the coaches and even the players on the Argo side – until that clock struck double zeros, I don't think anybody was really, really celebrating. You can see some guys were getting excited, but even the coach was just like, leave me alone. This isn't over until it's over. This is the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And for a moment, it looked like Winnipeg was going to storm down and, and, and score a touchdown. I mean, Caleros uh, found a receiver for 20, 20 odd yards, put them in field goal territory. And then that Toronto Argos defense went to work and was able to block that field goal attempt. Uh, and that was pretty much the solidifier in that game. It was just a crazy finish. Like you mentioned, uh, a couple of blocked field goals, couple of missed opportunities. Uh, I'm telling you, this game really had it all. And I think uh, people who were able to watch and listen in were probably extremely pleased with uh, how things turned out. Oh, and that's what you always want from a championship game like this. You want it to go mm -hmm. down to the final seconds. You want it to be exciting right to the end. Because if it, if the score was like 30 to 13 in the third quarter, I think a lot of people would have tuned out. But the fact that Toronto was behind, they managed to come back, even after what could have been just that kill shot with the, the kick return for the touchdown, that, okay, they, they showed that that tenacity, that heart, that determination to not give up. And as you mentioned, it was down to the final seconds, but they pulled it out. And the MB, the most outstanding player and uh, most outstanding Canadian player was only awarded for the second time to the same player last night. That's, wow. that's truly remarkable. 
Yeah, really, it really is. And I also saw a crazy stat that the Argos are 7-0 in their last seven Grey Cup appearances. So, you know, they're looking like the Michael Jordan of the CFL in terms <laughs> of uh, appearances in, in the Grey Cup. So we'll see if they can continue that trend next year. But it'll be uh, it'll be fun to see for sure. Absolutely. Jeff, thank you so much for bringing this to us and, and chatting sports with me this morning. Yeah, it was nice chatting with you, Alex. See ya. Take care. That is Jeff Ryman who was joining us. And now we are going to head back to Mike Ross, who has your AMI weather update. Thank you, Alex. This is your AMI weather report from Environment Canada. We begin in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there will be snow today, anywhere from 5 to 15 centimeters of snow. And winds will be gusting at 8 80 rather 80 kilometers per hour the temperature will fall to minus 2 the wind chill minus 10. charlottetown pei will be cloudy today with the the temperature steady around minus 1 the wind chill will be minus 10. st john new brunswick sunny with a high of plus one but as you move more inland it'll be minus four the wind chill minus 15. quebec city has some afternoon flurries between two and four centimeters you're getting a minus four high today and a wind chill of minus 22 this morning, minus nine later on in the afternoon. Toronto has a mix of sun and cloud and a high of plus five. The wind chill minus 12. To Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario next, periods of light snow, about two centimeters in total. So just a bit of a dusting there. You've got a high of plus three. Brandon, Manitoba, a mix of sun and clouds, a high of minus five, a wind chill between minus 15 and minus 10. Regina, increasing cloudiness, a risk of snow or freezing rain today. You've got a high of minus one. The wind chill minus 21 as you head out this morning, minus seven this afternoon. Lethbridge, Alberta has a mix of sun and cloud and a wind chill of minus 10. Red Deer, Alberta, clearing skies this morning. The high minus one, the wind chill near minus nine. Whitehorse has light snow and a high of plus one. Your wind chill is minus eight this morning. Kelowna, BC has a mix of sun and clouds and a temperature steady near minus two the wind chill minus four and vancouver has cloudy skies and a high of eight degrees and that was your ami national weather report from environment canada thank you very much mike we'll be chatting with you a bit later for the round table but uh for now we are going to be heading to break and coming up after the break marco flalo describes some of the big ticket items to check out this cyber monday with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe. One week from today, it's Cyber Monday, a chance to score some deals on some fantastic new tech to help guide us through kind of some of the big ticket items and what we should be kind of on the hunt for. I'm joined by Mark Afalo, the co-host of Double Tap TV, which can be found on AMI-tv Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Mark is joining me from Montreal. Hey, Mark, how's it going? Hey, Alex, how are you? Uh, not too bad. So we're talking tech and Cyber Monday. So can you go through some of the some of the items uh, that we have listed here? Let's start one at a time with Huawei's free bud headphones. So what can you tell me about those ones? 
So these are a pretty good set of headphones that come in around the $229 price range. They're going to be extremely discounted for Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and they're a good buy because you're going to save about 100 bucks when you get these headphones. Now, Huawei aren't necessarily known for their headphones. On the contrary, they're known for some other stuff in the country here. Um, but I've got them in front of me over here, and they're really these great set of silver headphones with active noise cancellation, dual device control, so you can actually pair it with multiple devices. Um, that active noise cancellation is actually pretty good on these devices comes with a charging case that gives you an extra eight hours of charging time plus the headphones themselves uh, will actually last you for about 12 hours in your ear whether you're consuming media on your ipad or ios device and this works across platform too alex you know this is not one of those devices that only work on huawei devices it works on android devices works on your pc your laptop no matter what you're looking for these are a great buy this season well, that's always the thing you have to now, like, explore when it comes to these different peripheral devices like headphones. It's like, does it work on cross-platform? What's the charging time like? What's the, the battery lifetime like? So thank you for bringing that up. And now for iPhone case accessories, I'm looking at getting a new iPhone. So the Catalyst iPhone case, why is this on the list? So this one's on the list because Catalyst is one of these brands that are Amazon only, which means that their cost of actual production and shipping is a lot cheaper. So they're going to be discounting these things, normally about $39 down to just $9.99. And they make them for every single manufacturer that's out there. And we say iPhones because that happens to be the one that I'm holding in my hand here for the iPhone 14. Now you can get them in different shapes and sizes. They make them in the silicone that just kind of wrap around your phone and give you a nice comfort. But they also make the more ruggedized version that have the silicone going on the hard plastic. So again, when you're shopping for someone in the holiday season and you don't want to spend too much money, but you want to get them something that you know they're actually going to use, a phone case is always a great place to go to. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure they, they have a variety of all the different models and the sub models, you know, and you've got the iPhone 14, the 14 Plus, the 14 Pro, the 14 You name Pro it. You Max, name a number, and, they'll have it for it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, you also wanted to touch on smart plugs, specifically the smart plug by Wemo. Wemo? Wemo? Wemo, Wemo. Wemo. So Wemo, okay. is a, Wemo is a brand that was born out of Belkin. Belkin's a brand that we've known for a while on the smart home side of things. And they've come out with a, this is the best barrier to entry or the least barrier, at least, you know the word. Um, it, it's it's the easiest way to get into making anything smart in your home. The smart plug, normally $79, is going to be available for $55 on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. It's just a small little plug that plugs into your wall, and then you plug your accessory into it, whether it's a smart lamp, whether it's a lamp, a fan perhaps, or maybe like an air purifier if you want to turn that on with your phone you can now do that just by plugging this into the wall and then you plug that actual you know device into it but then they also make an outdoor version which is great when you're planning for the holiday season you've got the holiday lights so same concept i've got one in my hand right here um, it has a plug that plugs into the wall it gives you two outlets that are independently controlled by your smartphone so you can use home kit they're compatible with google uh, you know google home uh, amazon echo you just pair it and say insert you know a lady name here turn on the outdoor christmas lights and it'll turn on the lights or you can call it of course whatever you want i use mine for heated mats on the outside so that when you want to go to the hot tub in the winter you don't have to worry about the snow alex mark you're living the high life there you're, you're using <laughs> smart technology used uh, very smartly i will say i i never thought about heating mats outside to get i i'm used to doing the the kind of run through the snow and the ice and the cold uh, uh deck floors to hop into the the hot tub and rewarm up uh you want the slippers all wet yeah exactly <laughs> right you know you you 
You learn it first, get the heat and match to, to get out to the hot tub. Now, we wanted to go and touch on other headphones. So these ones are by Trey, uh, Treblab. Treblab. You, Treblab. So why are these ones worth profiling? So these are over-the-head headphones. They're over-the-ear headphones as well. Um, we've got the Z7 Pro wireless active noise cancellation headphones over here. Again, these retail normally for over $349, but they're going to be discounted down to about $229. So these, you know, if you want to compare them to anything, you can compare them with some of the Bose super quiet headphones that go over the ear. Sennheiser makes a great, you know, a great set of headphones like this. But these are great for traveling. They're, they're obviously rechargeable. They've got a USB-C connector on the bottom, so you can plug that into any USB. BC charging port. You've got up to 18 hours of streaming music. It has a built-in microphone so you can take conversations. But if you're traveling, especially, and you're going somewhere far, sitting on a plane for a couple hours, the active noise cancellation on these are absolutely phenomenal. And because they're in one of those, again, straight to Amazon retailers, they really do discount these high. I mean, we're talking about, you know, these models are 349. Normally they're gonna be down to 229. They have other models that are normally five, six hundred dollars, they're gonna be down to three, three, two hundred dollars, or three, two, two, three hundred dollars. So lots of really cool options. The headphone. I got one more after this, and I know you're gonna lead me into it. I'll let you go there. <laughs> Alrighty, the G Fits by Logitech. I'm setting you up now to uh, tee it home. Okay, so. The G Fits by Logitech. Number one, Logitech bought Ultimate Ears about five years ago. Ultimate Ears have been making professional-grade headphones for musicians and everybody out there, the great portable speakers. Well, the G Fits take some incredible molding technology. So if you want custom molded headphones, these things actually go in your ear and in 60 seconds will mold to the shape of your ear. This means, yes, you can't share them, but at the same time, you're never gonna have the problem of your headphones falling out. They're full Bluetooth, they've got battery, they've got a charging case as well. You got up to eight hours of battery life on the actual headphones themselves, but it's that super molding and doing it at home that makes them absolutely unique because normally you'd have to go to an audiologist, get a mold done of your ear, then ship it off to some company, pay thousands of dollars and get them back and hope that they fit. These guys literally with their proprietary technology, you pop them in your ear, you use the app, you hold them there for 60 seconds, they heat up, not too hot, and they actually mold to the shape of your ear and they stay like that. Really, really cool set of headphones. And again, normally four or $500 down to $200 this holiday season. Yeah, no, that's a great deal. And as someone who's worn hearing aids most of his life, I am very familiar with the audiology ear mold yes. fitting and everything like that. To be able to do it at home for your headphones, that's huge because I've always had that problems with the earbuds or whatnot will just fall out and then there's never quite that good fit. So having something that's going to mold to your ear is huge. So thank you for, for highlighting some of these different ones, uh, Mark. Now, before we let you go, I want to find out what's coming up on Double Tap TV. Oh, really cool episode this week. We're talking about Ira, of course, the app that helps people with visual impairments get around and, you know, give them a set of eyes by the phone. Well, Ira's coming to a lot of really cool new devices, and we're going to be talking with Ira all about those new devices and when they're coming. That's awesome, Mark. Now, before I let you go, I want to just uh, pick your brain about your, you've highlighted sure. some great deals for Cyber Monday. Is there anything that's on your shopping list that you're kind of specifically keeping your eye out for? You know what? It's uh, my wife asks me that same question every year, and the problem is, is that I go out and buy these things for myself. <laughs> yep. um, funny enough, I'd say headphones, but I have so many pair of headphones. But uh, you know what? There's nothing, nothing specific on my list. It's, it's one of these things that I, I just, I see things that I'm like, oh, let me buy that, and then my wife says, why didn't you wait? And I said, I don't know. I sent her a couple tools. There's some couple tools yep. that I want, but they're not smart. They're not fun. Who wants a pair of tools? Well, I do. 
and, and that's always the problem. You, you you see it, you want it, and it's just, oh, the bad impulse control. Oh, well, this would have been a good gift, but I couldn't wait. I couldn't just have it come a couple months later. I need it now. Who needs to wait? What's that about? It's just the instant, uh, instant market we would live in. You know, we, we want it now. Exactly. Mark, thank you so much for stopping by and highlighting some, some great products for us to check out. Good to chat, Alex. Okay, that was Mark Aflalo, co-host of Double Tap TV, and he joined us from Montreal. And you can follow Double Tap on Twitter at Double Tap On Air. And so I just want to throw it back. If you want to follow Mark on Twitter, you can also check out and participate in our polls at AMI, at Accessible Media on Twitter, and at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today we're asking you, how punctual are you? Very, somewhat, not at all? The uh, three of us that we were chatting this morning, we're all very punctual. Maybe you guys at home, eh, not as punctual. Maybe you're a bit more relaxed. You don't get stressed out by showing up a couple minutes late to an event or a meeting. So our, uh, be sure to write in. And if you have any tips or tools for dealing with punctuality, be sure to leave a comment so we can read it on air. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Mike filling in for Dave Brown again. And at this point in the show, we like to do our roundtable discussions. So I'm going to bring in everybody, and then we're, I'm going to throw it to Mike Ross, who has our discussion. So first, let me welcome in Mike Ross. Hey, Hello, Mike, how's it going? Alex. Good, thank you. Uh, welcome in Ramya Muthan. Hi, Ramya. How are you? We lost Ramya. See, this is what happens when I'm I'm in charge. We we lose people. Uh, let's bring in Nisreen Adel Majid. Nisreen, how are you doing this morning? Pretty good. We're, we're having a bit of technical difficulties this morning. Uh, slightly uh, hard to hear Nisreen, but uh, I'll throw it to Mike. You can set up what our conversation is going to be, and hopefully by then we got everyone connected. Sounds good, Alex. Well, it got me. I wanted to start sort of on a, a lighter note on a Monday, and it is parade season, Christmas parade season. Yesterday, the city of Toronto had its uh, annual uh, Christmas parade, and it was the first time since the beginning of the pandemic that that parade was held uh, in real time, in person, with the crowds, with the floats and the clowns and all the activities around the parade. And uh, it was all over uh, television yesterday, so people were quite thrilled to have their parade, their Christmas parade back. But there's all kinds of parades that happen uh we uh, you've got the gray cup parade which uh, happens in the uh gray cup host city you have uh, uh the saint patrick's day parades you have uh, labor day parades parades of all kinds and so i wanted to go uh, around the table and uh, ask everybody about parades and uh you know, are they parade people? Do they have memories of uh, parades that they've atten uh, attended? Uh, have you ever been in a parade? So I'm going to throw these different questions around here. And uh, you you tell me, Alex, because uh, I'm just on the audio side of things right now. You let me know if we've got uh, Ramya and Nisreen. We, we do have Nisreen with us now. Yes, we do. Okay, cool. So let me start then with you, Alex. Okay. Um, are you a 
Christmas parade person? Is that something that's on your sort of docket every year? You know, I used to be when I was younger. I, I think there's just something about parades when you get older, there's a certain point where it's like, okay, I, I, I get the sentiment and, and I think it's more just geared for, for the younger kids and things like that to be able to go and you get to see, especially if it's like the Santa Claus parade, you get to see the Santa Claus uh, and all the other great floats and things like that. Now I'm not so much a parade person, but I mean, back when I was a kid, I loved them. I always wanted to see all the different floats, all the different balloons and, and, and the, the marching groups, the bands, the music, the whole festivities of it was really something that captivated me as a young kid. All right. Nisreen, what about you? Uh, Alex, I can relate to that because I feel like it, it's all been done before. It's the same thing over and over. But at the same time, it's beautiful. I mean, there's so many creative uh, floats and everything like that. So I, when I was younger, I used to be a parade person for sure. It's been years. I would love to go to another one, like regardless. Um, it's honestly beautiful. And I remember like the last memory I had was when I was admitted to the hospital. But what happened was I took the wheelchair outside and watched the parade right outside the hospital. It was on university line. Gorgeous. Um, and it was just so nice. I, it was full of people, and there was a lot of other patients as well just watching the parade. It was pretty nice. We have uh, made contact with uh, Ramia Uthin. Good morning, Ramia. Good morning, Mike. We're talking parades today because Christmas parades have started up here for the season. And and so I'm asking about Christmas parades sort of specifically, but we can talk about parades in general. Are you a parade person? Do you like to go to them? I feel like I'm going to be the first one to say that I never really enjoyed parades. I found them overstimulating and uh, I had been taken to some parades like Caravana and such, uh, but I found it to be just so overwhelming because there's a lot going on. Obviously, the visuals, the noise levels, I find it very disorienting to be, you know, in a crowded place, walking around anywhere mm -hmm. and everywhere. Um, I enjoyed, like I would tend to, you know, move towards more stationary elements of parades like food stands or whatever, you know, different things like that, vendors. But I, I still found it overstimulating. However, for years, I felt like I couldn't really voice this, Mike, because a lot of people love parades and uh, love them for what they are, just big, giant celebrations and colors and, and noise. Um, but lately, I've been hearing a lot more about other people feeling the way that I feel. And so listening to some people talk about making parades more inclusive, less stimulating, not a sensory mm -hmm. overload, it, it really emulates with me. I, I find that I can... Um, relate to that, talking about silent parades and talking about other things, initiatives around the country that people are doing to make it more accessible, make it more of an accessible experience. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective as well. I mean, I'm, I, my uh, enjoyment of a Christmas parade changed many, many years ago when a lot of smaller towns around where we live started changing to nighttime parades. So oh. from from the the lighting aspect of things, it's a completely different uh, feel. You, you there's almost like less of a need to be blasting music through the whole thing and 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 being really loud simply because 
a lot of people are are checking out just the lights because they're the colors are so visible at night. So they're they're I saw that as they started doing that, the amount of uh, or, or the number of sort of marching bands and things like that started going down. And it sort of started being a little bit calmer, like, hey, it's nighttime, let's relax, let's have a hot chocolate. And um, so for us, that's become a, a regular uh, every uh, every year. In fact, December 3rd is uh, is when we're heading uh, to uh, Port Perry, where we go for uh, the parade there every year. And there's a great restaurant, a great pub right there on the parade route. So we make a reservation and go out for, for dinner there right afterwards. And it, it makes for a really, really nice evening. Let me ask you, uh, everybody here in closing, has anyone here ever been in a parade? Because I have. Alex? No, I no. wish. No? <laughs> Nobody? I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I I feel like I have at some point. I, I did a lot of stuff with with beavers and cubs and scouts and things like that. Yeah. I, I feel like I've certainly done some sort of parade marching in one of those volunteer uh, events. Now, if you were in the scouts, you probably yeah. marched in a Christmas parade. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, I did everything else. I, I did bottle drives. I did apple days. Yeah. I did all sorts yeah. of volunteering, you know. So I, I, I feel like 100% I, I would have been in a parade at, at some point. But I... For the life of me, it's not uh, pulling up uh, in, in into my into my brain, but that's yeah. it. Like I, I think there's also that different experience, right? Like being in a parade and and you get to walk through and you get to see all the all the people celebrating and having fun and and just following those per, uh, like following the parade route as you you make your way through. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a different experience than being in the crowd where you're kind of like stuck waiting and you're you're just hoping. Yeah. Oh, okay, well this float has gone by or these people have gone by. Okay. Is there more coming? Like, can I, are we going now or, or whatnot? Where it's like, you're always moving and it's like, you'll get through the different spots. You know, some, some areas will be a bit noisier. Other areas will be maybe a bit quieter. I, I think there's, there's something to be said for that as well. I'll tell you the, the most fun and the least fun thing about having been in a parade. So I, when I was working in Ottawa in radio, working in a promotions team for our radio station, uh, we had on a on a flat bed trailer. We had this giant. They called it the giant boombox. It was like a giant radio with speakers, and we would drive this thing all over the city. And you could actually broadcast out of it. You could do live broadcasts around the city with it. And so I would tow this thing all over the city and that included in the Santa Claus parade and and so our we had staff that would walk alongside it or sit on top of it and I would drive this thing through the parade that was the fun part right just sort of following along seeing all the happy people seeing all the happy kids the toughest part is you when you have like candy or giveaways and stuff and there are kids who are who, like you just miss handing a kid candy mm. and and you see their faces just kind of like drop right like that was that was the hard part you just you didn't have time or supply to for everybody so there's always some kid that doesn't get that uh, that gift that candy in a parade like that when you're handing it out it, it can be kind of heartbreaking at times looking at the, a, a sad little face but thankfully you know once they get to the end of the parade they see santa claus and usually everything's forgotten by that point and besides 
they hand out so much stuff at these parades that usually every kid ends up getting something. But as someone who's handing stuff out, that's the least fun, I think, part of uh, of the parade. So you, you you make some some kids' days, and then you you crush yeah. other kids' days. It, 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 you you try to balance it out as much as possible. I'm sure. Now I'll, I'll tell you. Having marched in the St. Patrick's Day Parade with friends of mine who own an Irish pub in Buffalo, um, marching in that parade where you're handing out glasses uh, or cups of uh, Guinness yep. to uh, some <laughs> of the people along the parade route, everybody's happy. And you <laughs> definitely see some disappointed people when you don't hand them a, a free cup of uh, Guinness beer at that parade. So I've, I've been through that one as well, too, which... Uh, you know, at that point, you were so many Guinnesses deep that we don't really care about how other people feel at that point. It's all about how we feel at that point with with all the Guinness that we go through. They actually have a keg on our float and uh, and we're, we're having Guinnesses as we march in the parade. There's a fun afternoon. That's that's the type of parade I, I definitely want to march in. I, I want to be <laughs> on that too. one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you want to be like my dad who came along once and just sat on the float, yep. didn't do any marching, yep. just very comfortably sat there and enjoyed the cold beverages. A hundred percent. That is that is my dream afternoon, just being paraded around while I drink and people can cheer for me. That 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 is certainly, I think, the, the dream of mine now that... Uh, uh, I, I, I've <laughs> been made aware that it's a possibility. Mike, oh, thank yeah. you so much for, for uh, bringing this topic forward and having this discussion. I will let you go for now. And Nisreen, thank you so much for chiming in as well. Thank you. And Ramya, before we let you go, it's time to find out what folks at home can expect on, on today's uh, show. Absolutely. So coming up today on Kelly and Company, that's at 2 p.m. Eastern time. We have conversations about the FIFA World Cup just days away. Canada's in for the first time since 1986. So lots of celebration for soccer fans, football fans going on around here. Um, And we're getting the details with Neutral Zone's Josh Watson today for our sports update. Also, fans of Murdoch Mysteries have a chance to step behind the scenes and experience the history, science, and fashion of the internationally acclaimed show and we're going to talk about more about this with community reporter uh, Annette Dennis in London, Ontario. Plus we're talking about holiday time of course being upon us. Independent living skills specialist Leanne Barda is bringing us a holiday fun guide and she's covering everything and anything from tree trimming to personalized gifts and sensory activities for people with sight loss and recipes and more. Amazing. The holiday season is here in full swing. Sounds like yeah. a great show. Ramya, thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks, Alex. That was Ramya Muthan, ho- uh, co-host of Kelly and Company. Coming up after the break, Ryan Delahanty tells you about a new mental health day hospital coming to Sydney, Nova Scotia. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Every few days, the Now with Dave Brown team, we like to connect with AMI staffers from across the country to talk about the latest news and events that's happening from Canada's urban centres. It's time for our Atlantic Regional Report with Ryan Delahanty, our Content Development Specialist from Halifax. Hey, Ryan, how's it going? Good to be here with you, Alex. It's good. Yeah, I know. It's it's exciting. You know, we don't often get to chat like this. So now it, I, I get to 
I'm in the the driver's seat now, so this is this is exciting. So our first uh, topic that you wanted to bring up is that in New Brunswick, where special care homes, our operators have an idea on how to help those struggling without shelter this winter. So can you tell me a bit about what's happening over there? There's been a very rapid growth uh, of the homeless population in Atlantic Canada these last few years, um, largely related to the escalating rents. A CBC article last week revealed in the past year, rents in Atlantic Canada have been rising at the rate of about 32.2%, where during the same period, they've risen between 18 to 13% in Ontario, BC, and Alberta, respectively. Um, so quite a jump. And in the Moncton area alone, there are estimated to be about 400 homeless people uh, with a shortage of units and a growing wait list for subsidized housing. So to try and combat this issue, special care home operators have proposed that they could start using their vacant rooms to house some of the hundreds living on the streets as winter approaches. Yeah, that's such a a great idea because I know just based on my experience living in Edmonton for a few years, winters can be so harsh. And if, if you have a large homeless population, there needs to be places where you can you can have them stay during those harsh, long, cold winter nights. So how will this program work? In New Brunswick, there are about uh, 6,000 beds in 400 special care homes and between 700 to 800 vacancies, uh, Jan Seeley, the president of New Brunswick Special Care Home Association, told CBC New Brunswick. And so special special care homes are regulated and licensed by the Department of Social Development and offer level two care, which includes uh, 24-hour assistance or supervision. They charge about $100 per day or nearly $3,000 per month. Uh, for a resident, and in many cases, the Department of Social Development foots all or part of that bill. So Seeley said that each home focuses on a particular type of clientele, with about a third specializing in helping people with mental health disorders, intellectual disabilities, or addiction recovery. Often, residents will receive meals, laundry, housekeeping, medication management, transportation, haircuts, and most importantly, support is offered uh, to access a social worker and in-house doctor. So this can offer a really critical intervention to help people get back on their medication, find work, an apartment of their own, get back on their feet. And Seeley told CBC they want to see a robust pilot project that would start with consulting the people who are living on the streets. And she believes that by meeting with people who are in crisis, staff with the Department of Social Development, and partners like the special special care homes, uh, they could try and build a basket of services around them. And they feel that being able to offer addictions counseling would really be crucial in the success of any potential program. Yeah, this really sounds like this is more than just finding short-term housing solutions for for people in need. This is offering up a full suite of services and care that people need in order to be successful. Absolutely. And you want to help people on that road to being self-sufficient as much as possible. Um, So, you know, it sounds like a great idea. Uh, We'll see how government responds, how things pan out. Yeah. What has the response been? Has there been a response to this idea of a pilot project? 
So the hope is that the Department of Social Development will sit down with the special care home operators, their uh, governing association, to talk about how more people could move in on a temporary basis through the winter. Um, they'd love for government to help fund the addictions counselors so that these special care homes can start filling rooms immediately and not have to worry about quickly turning around and evicting residents for drug use uh, where they haven't really had the opportunity to go through counseling or get help. Um, but there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect with government where when CBC News contacted contacted the Department of Social Development about the proposal, uh, nobody was made available to speak on the issue. And in an email, the spokesperson, Rebecca Howland, told CBC, special care homes in the province are privately owned and operated. I recommend you either reach out to the facilities directly or the New Brunswick Special Care Homes Association. Uh, so kind of pointed them back where they started. And when CBC asked for greater detail, uh, the department's rep said that uh, they are not aware of any such initiatives at this time. So maybe some miscommunication, maybe uh, the Special Care Homes Association is gung-ho, uh, but maybe hasn't really given the detail to government. Uh, so it really looks like most things will come down to money and political will, uh, but hopefully the government individual operators and their governing association can come to the table and figure out how to make this work as it really does seem to be a great opportunity to utilize these resources that are already in place with you know hundreds of home rooms sitting vacant unoccupied and you know many people that could very much uh, benefit from having access so uh, hopefully we'll have more to report on that in the coming weeks yeah absolutely as as we mentioned it the the weather's only getting colder the nights are getting longer so the the quicker that action can be taken, the the better. And then hopefully, you know, this can be something that grows and, and becomes a model across the country, because I think that's that's the model for how you tackle this type of issue. Um, now, moving on to closer to home for you, you wanted to cover a mental uh, health day a hospital that's opening up in uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia. So can you can you tell us a bit about the latest news around this? Absolutely. This is something that started with a pilot project here in Halifax back in March. And the project provides medication, psychiatric programs, and services in hospital, but allows patients to go home at the end of the day, which government says reduces wait times for access to mental health care and frees up inpatient beds for other medical needs. The Halifax pilot program has already had a really positive impact by offering treatment for 50 patients and creating a savings of more than 1,000 inpatient hospital days. And so it was just announced that they'll be opening one in Sydney, Cape Breton as well, in addition to the original Halifax spot. And so this is expected to be a huge help for Cape Bretoners where psychiatric inpatient hospital beds have the highest occupancy rates, typically above 90%. And this means that patients uh, typically now have to be transferred to hospitals in other zones, taking them away from their homes and families and adding to the number of transfers needed by ambulance as well. So clearly there is a need uh, when is it expected to open and are there going to be any challenges or, or difficulties around this? The Day Hospital is expected to open in Cape Breton next spring and will be located inside the regional hospital and will operate seven days a week with an initial capacity of 10 patients a day. Uh, they're hoping to fairly quickly amp that up to 15 patients a day that they can process and see. The day hospital program is overseen by a psych psychiatrist and includes clinical assistants, mental health nurses, and social workers. 
In the spring, the government admitted it was short eight full-time psychiatrists in Cape Breton. So they're working to overcome those challenges in recruitment and retention. Uh, new clinical assistants have been hired and two new psychiatrists are coming from the United Kingdom. So hopefully they'll uh, like it in Cape Breton, I hope maybe arrive after the winter has passed and uh, find a home and be able to help out with the new day hospital, which is uh, getting a lot of very positive reception. I think people are really eager to have that resource in the community and cut back on how much they have to travel and that they can, you know, not be divorced from their daily lives and be able to go home at the end of the day and still get whatever help they may need. Yeah. And this is another amazing service and, and, and story that you brought forward, Ryan, like every single time you, you come on the show, you always bring these, these great stories and, and these great services that are, are popping up around the neighborhood. Do you do you find that within the region there there is this push to have these these types of more innovative, more inclusive services available? Because this is something that, you know, I, I see as a bit more of a trend that's coming forward, that there are more progressive ideas trying to create these new and innovative models to to provide people with care who are in need. Yeah, I think sometimes limitations do breed innovation. And so if you were to design something blue sky, this is the best way it can work. Um, you know, all these different logistics resources may kill that big idea. Whereas looking at the resources we do have and maybe where there is some extra capacity, how can we use that for good? So it is really nice to see. I think these are things that have potential to last. You know, it's a shame to you know, have uh, rolled this out, but it's dependent on, you know, funding increasing and it just kind of withers on the vine before many people get to uh, benefit from it. So it's nice seeing some of these uh, sorts of changes. They all seem to be very well received so far. So uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see more and more of that and a little bit of ingenuity can go a long way. Now, Ryan, before I let you go, I, I want to uh, ask you about our daily uh, poll question. This was one that I was kind of thinking of as I made my way early into work this morning to to kind of prep to fill Dave's shoes. He, he does so much behind the scenes that folks at home have no idea how much our, our lovely and talented host Dave Brown does. But are you punctual? Are you very punctual somewhat? Like none at all? What? How would you say uh, your your level of punctuality is? I'd say very. It's kind of ingrained in me. I couldn't tell you how many times I've had like a four-hour road trip to make it to a meeting or event, and I'm there 15 minutes early. Um, so, yeah, I think it's pretty ingrained. I'm pretty good at being there. Not so early that it's impolite, but uh, at the appropriate time. Awesome. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for chatting with me, uh, for sharing these stories. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to, to chat with you again. It's too long in between these conversations. I know. We've been needing to catch up, maybe not entirely on air live, but uh, we'll talk more soon. I'm oh, sure. why not? I mean, we could totally <laughs> just have our entire conversation just broadcast across the country. Everyone needs to hear what we have to say. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. That is Brian Delahanty, uh, who is joining us from Halifax. Now, we have a few news stories that I want to uh, share with you from across the country. So... Let me just pull up my script here as we get closer. Uh, starting with the COP27 conference. It wrapped up and it has supports for developing nations. Jordana Miller fills us in on the latest. 
As the UN climate conference wraps up in Egypt, a major victory for developing countries who do little to heat up the planet, but often pay a huge price for the weather-related side effects. Wealthy, advanced nations who fuel climate change, including the U.S., agreeing to set up a fund to help pay developing countries for the damages of ever more destructive floods, famines, droughts, and storms. It is a major breakthrough, but there's still a lot of work that lies ahead. How and when the financial fund will begin operating left to a future committee. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem. And there are new details that are emerging from the mass shooting that took place in Colorado Springs over the weekend. Alex Stone has the latest. Police say the 22-year-old shooter walked in and immediately began firing his AR-style rifle, hitting club staff and customers. Joshua Thurman was here dancing. At first, he didn't know they were gunshots. I thought it was the music, so I kept dancing. Then I heard another set of shots. Realizing what they were, he ran and hid in a dressing room. He tells us it was the most terrifying moment of his life. Alex Stone, ABC News, Colorado Springs. Since the attack, there have also been an increase in threats to the LGBTQ community. Aaron Katursky files this report. In the hours since the shooting at Club Q, threats of violence against the gay community began appearing on extremist platforms online. Here in New York, the state police said there would be more outreach to potential targets in the LGBTQ community and increased protection. Social media is simply awash right now in hate speech, fringe narratives, and vicious conspiracy theories that target gays and other minority groups in America. Law enforcement monitors much of it, but cannot police every corner of the Internet where angry people are encouraged to use violence. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, New York. So that's our show today. And coming up Tuesday on Now with Dave Brown, Lawrence Gunther shares some of the key takeaways emerging from the COP27 conference in Egypt. And we will learn more about sports, weather, and all the latest news happening. That's now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-tv. And I just want to thank today's guest for joining me, Mark Aflalo, Ryan Delahanty, Amy Amanti, Marco Pasqua, and Michelle McQuig. I'm filling in for Dave. I'm trying my best. You know, all the guests we have on here do a great job of making me look good, as well as the team behind the camera so i hopefully you guys are enjoying this as much as i am and we'll see each other tomorrow take care hey dave brown here if you enjoy this podcast portion of our show remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m eastern time on ami tv Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Juita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.